Today we're talking about Mark chapter 16, uh, but before we get into the Word and read it together, I'm going to take a brief moment to talk about how the Bible was written. This is important because of the content and the way that Mark chapter 16 was written. <clears throat> so the events of the ministry of Jesus on earth in the first century uh, took place somewhere around 30 to 33 AD. Okay. Now, Jesus' ministry uh, was one of uh, importance, it was one of urgency, and it was one of physically talking to people face-to-face to tell them the gospel, that is, the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. <clears throat> Christianity rapidly grew in the first century upon the death and resurrection of Jesus with the establishment of his church. And his church is essentially um, the, um, you know, the gathering of people on earth who are believers in Jesus, meeting together and worshiping and praying and requesting things from God and telling others about Jesus. And as people become believers, they become part of this community on earth that we call the church. Christianity rapidly expands in the first century. In fact, between you know, uh, 33 AD and the end of the first century, uh, literally thousands upon thousands of new converts were created, and um, Christianity was uh, the most rapidly growing religion in the world ever uh, at that point. <clears throat> and the reason it was so rapid was because people were getting out and telling others about Jesus immediately, face-to-face, and telling them the stories of Jesus and what he had said. <clears throat> well, as the decades wore on, the notion that Jesus was coming back immediately and that the end of the world was going to happen, started to fade. As people realized that this was a long-term prospect, he wasn't probably coming back right away like they thought, and also the people who had actually seen and heard Jesus um, as those uh, first-hand eyewitness uh, testimony people, they were starting to die. Um, the original apostles were starting to die. Uh, many of the believers who had heard Jesus, maybe on the Sermon on the Mount, or in Jerusalem, or, what, or Galilee, or what have you, they were starting to die themselves. The problem became what to do with their eyewitness testimony that they had seen and heard before they passed. Certainly the, the church of that era wanted to preserve that, and also to have a vehicle to be able to tell others about Jesus um, <clears throat> and, and keep that written down so that the truth would come out. Because, of course, as you can imagine, during this period, there was also a lot of uh, rumor of uh, falsehoods, even outright lies, that the Jews were making about Jesus so they could discredit him. And the church wanted to preserve the truth of who Jesus was and get that written down so that would last. And as we all know, when things are put into writing, they have a lot more longevity than when they're just told to someone. So that brings us to the Gospels. Uh, in fact, the letters that were written between Christians in the first few decades of the, of the early church, um, primarily from Paul, but also from Peter and John, they are preserved in what we call the canon of the New Testament today in our Bible. Those happened before the Gospels were written. Um, but like I said, it was, it was decided that we wanted to preserve the actual stories of Jesus himself and his life uh, so that others would know this um, before the first eyewitnesses died. And that is when the Gospels were written. <clears throat> so somewhere around probably 60 to 70, maybe 80 AD, um, pen was put to paper or papyrus at the time. And the eyewitnesses who had seen and heard Jesus firsthand, uh, their stories were assembled into a collection 
of uh, essentially documents that became what are known as our Gospels. So let's take Mark, for instance. Mark is probably, and I believe this, and many others think this too, it was the first gospel written. Not the first in the New Testament, because of many reasons. Um, it's the shortest, um, it's the most direct, it's very straightforward, it's probably the first one written, landmark in uh, human literature. Mark is what you would really call an investigative reporting. The author here is probably not an eyewitness directly to Jesus, but he is a friend to people who were, like Peter. It's widely thought that Peter is the one who narrated much of Mark to the author Mark, and Mark wrote it down and circulated it. We also know that there's content in Mark that came from other sources, <clears throat> what is called the sayings of Jesus, or the sayings gospels. We have those today. One of them is called the Didache. That is kind of a first, second century um, teaching document that has remarkably survived. It has a lot of the sayings of Jesus that you would be familiar with, with like his Sermon on the Mount material, um, his, uh, his parables. <clears throat> the sayings, the kind of the teachings of Jesus were probably written down first and collected. So the Gospels represent a, um, essentially a collection of information from multiple sources multiple eyewitness accounts assembled together by a single aud uh, editor or author, in this case we would say Mark, because <clears throat> we don't know his name, uh, it's attributed to Mark and we'll call it Mark, to put it together into one unified whole. <clears throat> now here is something that's very important to understand. First of all, uh, Matthew and Luke will write their Gospels after Mark, we know that is true because they used Mark as a source for some of their material. About a quarter of, uh, to a third of all of the material in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke are actually copied, and in fact, in some cases, literally copied word for word and pulled out of Mark and put into Matthew and Luke's Gospel accounts. That's okay, because we appreciate the fact that those authors went to a lot of trouble to gather what they considered to be the true accounts of Jesus and put them into one comprehensive final um, whole. Many stories of Jesus were not recorded in the Gospels. Uh, we just have a few pages today, 2,000 years later, of what was probably at least three years of Jesus' life. Of course, it doesn't have everything. And I like to remind people that... Um, <laughs> The absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. What I mean by that is much was done by Jesus and said by Jesus that no longer appears in the gospel accounts we have today. But we think that what is there is the core stuff that's the most important and thus um, is truthful, of course, um, not contradictory, um, but that it says everything it needs to say, <clears throat> essentially what I'm getting at. Even once the Gospels were actually written down, penned to papyrus at the period, there was still plenty of people, stories, and information circulating um, verbally and through letters of the accounts of Jesus' life that are not in the Gospels as they were written down. <clears throat> okay, So that's, that's something to remember here. Uh, it was true 
the people who saw Jesus, and maybe you were one of the, the people on the mountain and you got fed and you were one of the 5,000. Or may, maybe you were there when uh, Zacchaeus went up in that sycamore tree and you saw it. Uh, or maybe you saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. Look, there was plenty of people that saw his miracles. They were important and they were eyewitnesses and they were certainly truthful. They would have continued to tell, look, uh, son, I was there when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and here's all the things that happened that day. And, oh, dad, by the way, did you read Mark? It just came out and, and it's a story of Jesus' life. And, oh, that's great. And let me read it. And, oh, yeah, all this stuff. I wasn't there for that and I wasn't there for that. Oh, but I was there for that. That's what happened <laughs> in the first century. And so, because of that, because so many eyewitnesses were producing so much material, mostly through just telling people verbally about what they had heard and passing them down through stories and information, but sometimes writing it down, a whole collection of information started to spring up in the first century about Jesus. Now, if you're living in the first century, actually, this became a super hot topic in the Roman world. People were desperate to get their hands on anything and everything they could about the life of Jesus. And that's partly why the Gospels were written. It was to satisfy not only that need to record that information, but people were clamoring for it. They were like, we want to know about this Jesus who, you know, all these people in our village became believers. We want to know about what did he do? Where did he come from? Where was he born? And so that that desire from his audience, essentially, Jesus' audience, to know more about him, created this need for what became the Gospels that were published. Now, the next thing you've got to remember here is how writing works in antiquity. There is no internet. There is no newspapers. Um, there is no Library of Congress. Um, when things are written down, <laughs> if you write something on a piece of paper, there's only one copy of it, and that's all that history has until someone decides to copy that and make a copy of it. And of course, there's no photocopiers, there's no printers, there's no scanners. The only way that material gets reproduced so it survives is someone has to sit down and look at the original document and copy it into a second document. Now we know from history in fact, there are over 5,000 fragments or entire books of the New Testament that survived in the first three or four centuries <clears throat> that show just how careful the copyists were to take those original documents that they had in front of them and copy them into a new document because the old documents were wearing out. Look, they're paper. They're papyrus. They get worn out. People read them. They take them, you know, to the village and someone spills their juice on it or, you know, their kids step on it or a fire breaks out, right? Those paper documents degrade over time and are damaged and eventually they're going to be lost completely. <clears throat> the only way that those documents can survive the content is for someone to go and copy that material down to make a new one. That happens. It happens with the documents that we now consider to be the canon of our New Testament for the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It happens for a lot of other documents like the Didache, um, like the Sayings Gospels. And it happens for just eyewitness testimonies in letters that people are writing back and forth, like uh, Paul uh, <clears throat> and, and you know uh, Peter uh, and John. Long story short, over the years, 
sometimes people realized that all of these different pieces of documents and information were all talking about the same thing, so they would, they would be put together into an even more comprehensive document. We're almost sure that John himself did this, because if you read the end of the Gospel of John, you will realize that the second to last chapter is an end to an entire book. It, it kind of says, this is it, this is what Jesus did, he did many other things, have a nice evening, drive safely. And then the last chapter of John is a restart. He <laughs> jumps back into the story. The Gospel of John was probably written by a man, probably John, who... Once he had finished that first draft and it started to circulate, realized very quickly he needed to include some additional content. Now, for whatever reason, either because he remembered it or because someone came to him and remember, these are group efforts. Someone else came and said, oh, you, John, you've got to put this in, right? You're, you wrote this giant book, but we need you to include a little extra. And he's like, oh, yeah, I should include that. Scholars are pretty sure that John himself rewrote or essentially added to the end of his own gospel, and so that would circulate. <clears throat> now, the form that we have today seems to have been taken from a source that had that last chapter in it already. In the case of Mark, it appears as though that first draft of Mark started to circulate and started to circulate long enough that it started to get copied and sent out into the Roman Empire until at some point a second draft was created in which some additional material was unified into Mark and it probably wasn't from the original author but it was from a source that was so trusted in the church community of probably the second century which they decided look this is true I know it's true I saw it I heard it this is absolutely true. Mark ends somewhat abruptly with a resurrection without really anything about Jesus himself that we really have to button this up. So it was decided to create a second draft in which that additional material about Jesus and his and his say, you know, what he said and what he did after he rose from the dead again is included so that people like you and me 2,000 years later would have a more complete picture of what had happened. And in fact, it's, it's not too far of a stretch to say the, the people were reading the other Gospels that were being published, like Matthew and Luke and John, and saying, look, Mark, this first draft of Mark just didn't have quite everything we needed to put that actually happened. Let's finish it. That brings us today to Mark chapter 16. Let's read it together, and then we'll talk a little more about what we mean there. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus' body. Very early on in the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. 
Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. These returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating, and he rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people, and they will get well. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven, and he sat on the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere. And the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. This is a remarkable end to a remarkable book, the first of its kind in the world, a gospel account of Jesus' life. And of course, no account would be complete without talking about the most special event of his entire life, and that is, Jesus rose from the dead. A famous person once said, you can say whatever you want about someone, but anyone who can raise himself from the dead is who he says he is. And that is absolutely true of Jesus, our Messiah, who rose out of death and make no mistake, he was dead. The Romans would have confirmed it. The life of the centurion himself was on the line if he put a living guy in that tomb and he walked out of there. The Jews had every incentive to make sure he was dead because they did not want this guy Jesus walking around anymore and stirring up trouble. And the eyewitnesses themselves, again, very clear references here to the women who were believers and followers of Jesus, saw him die, they saw him buried, and they saw him put in that tomb on a Friday. And now they're going in the very first part of the morning on Sunday. Here's a quick note about three days. There was no zero in antiquity. Everyone started counting with one. So when I say Let's say it's Friday, and I say, on the third day, I am going to go to the grocery store. That means Sunday, because Friday is already the first day. Friday was the first day. Saturday, or the Sabbath, was the second day. And Sunday, what is today and was back then, the start of the new week, essentially, is Sunday, which is the third day. Women discover that the tomb is empty. We know from the other gospel accounts there was probably two angels in there, although they only reference one here. Very early, just after sunrise, they were going to the tomb. They were probably hoping that someone would open the tomb for them. Probably the centurions, because they were women, they posed no threat. Um, and this would have been a fairly common practice to, um, to uh, you know, anoint a body with spices out of reverence. A fresh-cut tomb in the rock probably hasn't had time for people to dig a bunch of extra tunnels into it. There's only one way in. Jesus' body would have been laid on a 
pedestal or on a kind of a bench. This is not like our modern world where people are buried in the earth six feet under in nice soil. Um, there's only rock in Judea. People don't go to the trouble of burying people in the rock. They take a body, they put it into a place. They, they could have burned it. That, that did happen. Um, cremation, but, but in this case, uh, it was put into essentially this small cave in the earth, laid on a pedestal where it would rot because there was no embalming. In the heat of a Judean uh, spring and summer, it would have rotted very quickly. And there would have been nothing but bones and, and you know, um, dust, essentially, after a year. After a year, someone would go into that tomb, collect the bones of the person who had died the previous year, and either throw them in the garbage. Uh, they, Roman soldiers would have done that. Um, Someone who cared about someone who was in that tomb, they would have collected up the bones and treated them with reverence. Sometimes they put them in a box. It's possible, we think, that the uh, high priest himself uh, was put, after he died, was put into a box, uh, Joseph Caiaphas, and the name put on it because he was rich. And, and we think we might have that box today. Long story short, uh, the bones would be uh, swept up, put into a, into a container or onto a shelf, and then a fresh body would have been put onto that bench for it to rot away. So they go in there expecting to see, when it's open, see Jesus' body. And it's not there. And we know from the gospel accounts that the linen that was there was folded up nicely and laid to the side. We also know that there are two, in this case we hear about one, but there's another one there, two angels that announce the resurrection of Jesus to those women. What, <laughs> what a remarkable passage that the women are the special receivers of this moment of history and word that Jesus has risen from the dead, and they go tell everyone, and no one believes them. <laughs> now, yes, part of that is because they are women in this era, um, that's that's undoubtedly true. Another is that well, what, would they have believed you if you were a man and you went and said, "Oh, Jesus is alive." Well, they probably wouldn't have believed that either. Look, everyone knew that Jesus was dead. They knew the Romans had killed him, and there's no way he would have survived that. So this is just hard for people to believe. Look, it's hard today. Two thousand years later, people still find it hard to believe that a man raised himself from the dead. But it's true; it did happen, and we know it because. The second half of Mark 16 fills in those pieces that people all knew in the first century. It just didn't accompany the first draft of Mark. And so what is absolutely true, <clears throat> Jesus himself appears to his disciples after his resurrection. There's different accounts of what happens. It's all very strange. I don't understand it. Somehow, Jesus knew resurrected eternal body is different but similar to his earthly body. He still bears the hallmarks of his of his torture and execution. Remember, he shows Thomas the wound in his side and the holes in his hand. So remnants or scars of what happened to his earthly body remain, but that body is now different. It has been changed. It has been remade and transformed into a form that cannot die again. Look, you can only die once. And when you are remade into that resurrected body, and you go home to, to paradise to live in glory with your Creator, you will get a new body that looks, apparently, this is the model, looks like your old body, but is different. It has a different form. It's similar, but different. You can recognize people. Again, the Gospels write about how 
people were kind of, Jesus kind of looked similar, but he looked different here. It sounds like he looked a little bit different. But eventually they recognize him, and they recognized him enough to believe that he was who he says he was. I'm going to tell you this right now. The community of people that wrote this Gospel of Mark and read it would have never believed Jesus rose from the dead if they weren't convinced themselves. Why do I say that? Because almost every person, well, all of the apostles, suffered a torturous death except for John, who was tortured and imprisoned by Rome. They all suffered terrible, terrible trials on earth because they claimed they had seen Jesus rise from the dead. I don't know who you are. No one I know is going to do that for a lie. No one's going to go out to the world and suffer depravity, poverty, torture, imprisonment, and murder because of a fraud that they're perpetuating. None of the apostles benefited earthly from any of this testimony. No one got royalties from publishing the Gospel of Mark. They did not sign Simon & Schuster contracts to get paid handsomely for publishing this material. They all died penniless and, and sometimes alone. What I want to make the point here, <clears throat> the point here is that these are absolutely trustworthy documents. The people who wrote Mark and who received it and were telling people about it in Judea in the first century absolutely believed they had seen Jesus rise from the dead. They believed it, folks. They were so convinced of it, their whole lives changed because of it. <clears throat> this was not a fraud. This was not... Um, lies to, to collect a bunch of royalty money. People believed that, that Jesus had actually raised from the dead. <clears throat> now, the, the author of Mark here and, and the pieces that are in Mark, they want to make it very clear about what happened after the resurrection. There were some very specific things. The first is that the angels say you should go to Galilee to meet him. Why did they say go to Galilee when it had happened in Jerusalem? And we know that Jesus um, was taken up into heaven from Jerusalem. It's thought that, first of all, Galilee was the base of operations for Jesus and his ministry. Uh, We believe certainly there were far more believers in Galilee than there were in Jerusalem in this uh, this year. So they wanted uh, Jesus to go home to the people who actually knew him and had interacted to prove that he was, in fact, alive. Again, this, is, this makes total sense. If this is the real Jesus, you want him to go to where the people knew him. His family was still in Galilee. We know his brother James was still in Galilee and, in fact, would not become a believer until after he went back to Galilee. I'm sorry, but if, if you are the brother of this guy Jesus and you were not a believer and then he dies on the cross, why in heaven's name would you become a believer after that if you knew he was dead? You wouldn't. You would have been like, look, we knew he was crazy. He thought he was this person he wasn't. I never believed it, and, and I was right, and he died. Something happened to James, Jesus' brother, after Jesus was killed to convince James that he was who he says he was. Folks, the only way that is possible is if he actually saw Jesus again. <laughs> And he knew that Jesus was that person. If you are perpetuating a fraud, let's say Joseph of Arimathea wants to really stick it to the Sanhedrin and make it seem like Jesus had risen from the dead because he really hates all those guys. So he's going to have this guy he goes and hires as an imposter 
to go out into the world and pretend to be Jesus. That makes no sense because the first thing you would do is never have him go to the people that knew him because they'd know right away that's not Jesus. He hired some guy to say he was Jesus. You would have him go to places he had never been before so that no one could confirm that he was who he says he was. Well, that's not what happened. In fact, we know that Jesus went home to Galilee and went to something like 500 people that he already knew and proved it was him. In fact, the the Gospels even show he went to Thomas and proved he was he was who he said he was. Um, the next thing is that well maybe he had you know he hired some people to get in that tomb. Look, there's a hundred different things about the resurrection story that if you think about it for a few minutes, make no sense that it was a fraud. No one's going to roll that stone away because the centurions were there to guard his body. We know from the Gospels the Roman leadership were really worried that someone was going to steal his body or cause a problem. That place was guarded. That place was locked down tight. The guards who were there would have faced the death penalty if they had allowed that body to be stolen or taken. And that's exactly what happened. They did. They uh, Something happened <clears throat> uh, in which the guards were unable to guard that tomb and someone got into it. And there's no account here about those guards being anywhere around this, this tomb when those, those ladies show up. So they're long gone. <clears throat> Folks, the only natural explanation here is that Jesus did rise from the dead. He went home to Galilee, he showed his face to the people who knew him, and he told them what was about to happen. This last piece is is exactly the point of why I believe that community in the second century put this truthful material as a kind of an appendix onto the end of 16. They wanted the message of what happens next to be very clear. The message of what happens next is not very clear in the middle of 16. So what? Okay, great. Jesus rose from the dead. Now what? Well, the so what, now what, is the second half of 16. Guess what? Here's the action item. You've been in a meeting before, folks, right? You've been at work. You've been at school. You go through some kind of uh, meeting, and at the end is the action phase. Now what are we going to do about it? And that is the end of chapter 16. The whole point of the resurrection of Jesus is to get believers to go out into the world and tell others what had just happened. That's exactly what happens. Believers who believe that Jesus is who he says he is must must tell people about him. God has decided that humans will play an essential role in his redemptive plan. The gospel has to be preached to someone for them to hear it, to believe it, and to become saved. That is biblical. In order for that to happen, people have to go and tell others. And that's what the second half of 16 says. We have this strange uh, thing about, uh, you know, the signs who accompany those who believe. In my name, they'll drive out demons. They'll speak in tongues and pick up snakes and drink deadly poison. I will say a brief mention about all of that. Please do not go out and pick up snakes. We know from the biblical accounts that three of these four happened after this happened. And the fourth one happened um, through what we believe is the church tradition in the end of the first century. We know that the early Christian apostles went out and drove demons out. That is recorded in Acts. That That was happening quite a bit. The apostles went out, performed miracles in the name of Jesus to to jumpstart this Christian community. And to, and to continue to demonstrate the new kingdom power that Jesus came in authority and love. They drove out demons. They healed people. They even rose, uh, raised people from the dead. Second is they spoke in tongues. We know that they were able to, uh, to uh, speak to other cultures and other languages 
In fact, Paul himself, raised as a Jew in, uh, in uh, Tarsus, probably was raised speaking Hebrew and Greek. The entire New Testament was circulated in Greek, a second tongue to the original Aramaic language of the Jews of Judea. So there's a second one. <clears throat> this third one about picking up snakes. Folks, if you've read the book of Acts, you know the remarkable moment on the island of Malta, which Paul shipwrecked, grabs a viper, uh, essentially, from the ground, it latches onto his arm, he throws it into the fire. Even the Romans there remark about how amazing and supernatural it was that he did not die. So that is probably a direct reference to Paul and what's about to happen in about 20 years. Now, fourth is this drinking deadly poison. Uh, church tradition records John, the Apostle John, in the presence of Domitian, a wicked and terrible uh, Roman Caesar emperor, was challenged not only with imprisonment and torture, but being forced to drink poison to kill him as kind of a, you know, I want you dead. And John lived. He lived through what is uh, probably boiling in oil. He lived through being poisoned. He certainly lived in imprisonment um, <clears throat> on his island of Patmos to write the book of Revelation. Please don't go out and pick up snakes. <laughs> Please do not drink poison. What should you do as a listener to this podcast? Don't worry about performing miracles. Worry about telling others about Jesus and his miracles in your life that have already happened and pray for new miracles. Tell people about the gospel. Tell others the stories of Jesus and how he has changed you. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time.